to the Real Marathon Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the best in film each and every week. I'm Rob Carraher. And I'm Danny Carraher. And we are continuing our Wes Anderson marathon this week with fantastic Mr. Fox. We're starting to get toward the end uh, of the the marathon. Um, And I think that I'm enjoying this a little bit more as it goes along just because it uh, continues to add to um, the, the thoughts that I have been having uh, about Wes Anderson as a filmmaker, simply because we're watching all of these kind of as one um, almost big review. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that today. Um, but before that, let's talk about what came out this week. Uh, there are a few films that I, I have had the chance to see um, because Luckily, I got to see them at the Sundance Film Festival. So we have dedicated a little bit of the back end of this show to talking about some of those movies that we have seen this week and uh, catching up with movies that that we are uh, missing from previous weeks. So uh, we'll have a few movies that we're going to talk about in a little bit more depth than we typically would during this period of time. Um, and we're, we're now in a place where it feels like every week I'm getting further and further behind in, uh, seeing a lot of these films because there's just too many that are coming out and I can't catch up with them. Um, but, uh, one of these weekends, I'm going to try to sit down and, and watch a bunch of movies, especially the ones that, uh, are on the streaming services because I will have those uh, at my kind of discretion to watch whenever I want. Um, so the first movie that came out this week came out on Thursday uh, and it was released on Hulu. And this is the documentary Homeroom. I did get a chance to see this at Sundance. So I'm going to talk about that on the back end of the show, um, but kind of as a preview of part of the conversation, uh, I want to say that the uh, IMDb score right now is a 4.9 and the Metacritic score or the Metascore is a 68. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, our conversation around this, I think is going to be somewhat based on uh, these scores and how this documentary is being received by people. Um, because I think that that's kind of an important thing to think about in terms of how people uh take in certain movies and specifically documentaries because uh, they can be more controversial. So we'll talk about that here at the, toward the end of the show. Um, There were sort of considered three big movies that got theatrical releases this week. The first is Don't Breathe 2, which is a sequel to the horror film Don't Breathe. Um, And this currently has a 6.4 IMDb score and a 47 meta score. Have you seen the original movie, Danny? I saw Don't Breathe in theaters when it came out and must have been 2015, 2016. Um, the premise is goofy. It's about a, a man that is blind and he's kind of a threatening presence and these kids sneak into his house and... Um, you don't want to mess with this guy. He's, uh, and he's not the good guy, obviously, but uh, apparently in Don't Breathe 2, people sneak into his house again. <laughs> uh, and so 
he's he can find you easily um, just by sensing you or you know hearing you and so I, I I think that it's kind of a fun premise for a horror movie it's a little goofy um, you know I, I I can't expect that this is probably very good just based off of the first one but you know I I don't think it needs to be amazing in order to enjoy it so um, I well, imagine a lot of people are gonna see it and be like that was a pretty fun movie well, the first one got a 7.1 on IMDb and a 71 Metascore. That's as consistent as it gets right there. Yep. Uh, but uh, in, in for we've talked about this previously for horror movies. That's that's a pretty good score. That that is a kind of upper tier type of horror movie. If you can get into the sevens, especially um, for both uh, the the Metascore and um, and and for the IMDb score. So the thing that I think is interesting though, is that we already know what the concept of the movie is simply because there was a, a first one. And so I think it gets maybe even a little sillier when they make a sequel. Um, Cause it's like, if this is in uh, the same kind of world and it's the same person, you'd think that people would learn from the first time around, but uh, <laughs> you know, I guess that's horror movies for you. Um, but I, I presume this will be a pretty popular movie. And I think that given the circumstances of now and how uh, people just, they, they aren't flocking to the theaters like they would have in the past. This probably won't do great in the theaters, but I think by the time that it makes it to um, our streaming services or to be rented, that probably a lot of people will see this movie um people just like horror movies and uh i i don't see why this this would be any exception to that mm -hmm. um the another big movie that came out this week is free guy which is the latest from ryan reynolds and uh there was a lot of anticipation for this um as it was coming out mm -hmm. and overall it seems to be receiving pretty solid reviews for the type of movie that it is. It has a 7.7 .7 on IMDb and a 62 Metascore. And, uh, you know, I, that, that kind of fits with what I would expect of this sort of movie if it were to be considered a fairly enjoyable, good movie. And I've heard decent things about it, but uh, that it may be rehashing a lot of uh, movies that are very, very similar to it. Um, so it may not be overly original, but uh, probably a lot of fun. Yeah, it's one that I probably am not going to go for very easily. And I, I don't have a super strong desire to see it, but I imagine it's pretty entertaining. And Ryan Reynolds has a good following that support him and just like that type of humor. Um, but I think I've already heard some things that it might kind of be Truman showy. Um, and maybe it's a little bit kind of like ready player one in some ways, kind of a mix of those two movies. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and, and it's definitely a movie of our time in a lot of ways, thinking about, you know, the digital world and what that means for our existence and all of those things. Um, so I, I think that aspect of it is interesting, but I just, I'm not a super big fan of that style of comedy. I'm not either, and uh, this is the sort of movie I think that I would 
like to maybe see on some Saturday night when it's sitting on a streaming service and I'm just wanting to watch something that's fairly mindless and uh, kind of fun that isn't going to be some overly depressing movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I might throw this movie on uh, at some point in time, but I probably won't see it in the theaters and there's just way too many other things that I'd rather see at this time. And every week there's going to be more added to it. Um, so I think free guy is probably going to slip through the cracks a little bit for me. Um, especially considering that I haven't heard anybody say you absolutely have to see free guy. So, um, I think that's the way it's going to be. Um, the kind of third big theater release this week is the film respect, which is the biopic about Aretha Franklin starring Jennifer Hudson. And this film has 6.9 IMDb score and a 63 meta score. And from everything that I have heard, I have heard that Jennifer Hudson is absolutely fantastic in this. And most people believe that she is about as close to a lock for a uh, Best Actress nomination at the Oscars as you can be at this point in the, the season. I mean, Um, the movie is basically designed for that purpose. It's it's all about getting her. It's it's Oscar bait. I mean, that's what this movie is. It's one hundred percent Oscar bait. The one thing I think is interesting about it is that Aretha Franklin handpicked Jennifer Hudson to play her in this movie, Mm -hmm. and um, I think that makes it maybe a little bit more interesting. Uh, I will see this movie. I don't know when I'm going to see this movie, but I'm going to see this movie simply because it is a very, very closely related to the Oscar race. And that's ultimately one of the things that I'm most interested in, um, in terms of going to see movies is the big award players. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I have kind of tempered expectations about it being a fantastic film, but uh, I I've seen enough music biopics in the past to kind of know what to expect and Mm -hmm. recognize that that's, they are what they are. And um, then you're kind of just looking for some of those more niche uh, aspects of, of the film that that could make it somewhat enjoyable. Um, So that, that kind of is the main films that came out. There are a couple other big names um, that, aren't getting the same sort of releases that uh, these other movies had. One is called Beckett and it was released on Netflix this week. This is, we talked about previously how Netflix is releasing a movie every week. It's got some pretty big, big named actors in it. Um, So this one has John David Washington uh, and it, from the trailer, it looks like it could be interesting. It doesn't look like it is something overly original, um, but uh, it looks like it, it could be a, an interesting film. Now, didn't get great reviews. It has a 5.6 on IMDb and a 53 meta score. Um, and so, honestly, this is probably a movie that I will never end up seeing um, just because it there isn't enough buzz around it to get me overly excited. And once again, there's just so many other movies I'd rather see. And, uh, and even though this seems like the type of movie that could have been, you know, pretty good, it's just, 
for whatever reason, people aren't enjoying it all that much. Well, it's too bad too, because I, I think John David Washington is a really good actor and interesting because I, I think he has a lot of potential to be a bigger star in the future too. And I love Alicia Vikander. So I, I think that it's exciting to see a movie where they could be acting with each other and just see what they kind of have with each other. But um, I just don't, yeah, I don't know. It, it, I, it's weird because this movie snuck up on me. It just kind of was here all of a sudden and didn't hear much about it ahead of time and still I'm not hearing much about it. So, Well, I think this kind of goes back into our conversation we had. Uh, I don't remember if it was last week or a couple weeks ago. It, yeah, it must have been last week because of Vivo. Um, but how Netflix, they, they don't necessarily promote their movies hardcore. They kind of let, I think, the platform uh, do advertising for, for some of these. And they, they know that people are just going to watch the movies they put up there. And the best are going to rise to the top and it will build kind of this conversation around them. So if a film isn't great, um, then Netflix isn't really interested in promoting it. but mm-hmm. Their, their whole model is just about providing content for people in a continuous fashion. And they just don't seem that interested in putting a ton of extra money into the promotion of films. They must have some sort of data to prove that it isn't worth doing that because the best movies that people actually are going to want to watch are going to kind of rise up. And that's why they have like that top 10. When you're on the platform, you can see what the top 10 most watched movies are and uh i i look at that often uh I, it doesn't necessarily um equate to quality but uh i think that probably a lot of people do that they go there like oh it's number one on this and so then they end up watching that movie mm-hmm. um, but yeah you're right i hadn't seen anything about this until about a week ago and that trailer popped up and uh, i watched it and uh, that was the first i had ever heard of anything um regarding this movie so yeah, it's going to be interesting to continue to kind of follow that and see uh, how Netflix uh, in the future promotes their films. Um, the other big release that's not as big because it hasn't really gotten a giant theater release is Coda, which was the big movie at Sundance. And I did see this movie, so I'll talk about it a little bit more um, on the back end of the show. Uh, but this was released on Apple TV Plus with a limited theater um, distribution. And I don't think this week it is playing anywhere in the Omaha area. I think that next week it's going to make it to some of the art houses. But um, it is on Apple TV Plus and uh, it currently has an 8.2 on IMDb and a 75 Metascore. And I will add to that conversation a little bit here on the back end. Um, there are four other movies that are a little bit smaller in in release uh, that came out this week. One is called The East, which has a seven point or a seven on IMDb and a fifty five Metascore. You can currently rent this on video on demand. Uh, so if you go to like Amazon, you can rent that. Um, it's a World War II. I think it's foreign. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to see it <laughs> um, just because it. it it uh, doesn't have good enough reviews for me to be super excited about it. And uh, it's just not readily available. Um, there's a film called Emma, 
which looks to be about an adoption and kind of how this family's core unravels after this adoption. And this has a 6.8 on IMDb and a 71 Metascore. I think it currently is playing at some art houses around here. Um, but uh, this actually looks kind of interesting to me. Um, I think that there are some interesting aspects to it. And I probably won't see it in the theaters, but if this movie uh, it makes it to some of our streaming services, uh, toward the end of the year and early next year, I probably am going to watch it um, just, just because it, it looks intriguing enough for me. Um, then there is a movie called The Lost Leonardo, which is a documentary about a painting that Leonardo da Vinci did that was discovered like more than a century after he was big. And then now it's kind of just disappeared and they don't know what happened to it. So it's this documentary surrounding uh, this. Currently has an 8.3 on IMDb and an 80 Metascore. Um, could be interesting. Uh, if it becomes readily available to me, I will probably watch it. If not, then it probably won't. <laughs> it's just that sort of documentary. Mm -hmm. And the final movie that came out this week is called Naked Singularity. And this got terrible reviews. Um, it is playing in the theaters, uh, but it has a 4.2 on IMDb and a 36 Metascore. And it's disappointing because it's John Boyega, and I love John Boyega, um, also has Olivia Cook and Bill Skarsgård. Um, and and you, I would hope that they would be in something that, that could, uh, could be a little bit better than that, but it's a comedy, um, comedy crime drama. And yeah, it's just getting trashed on IMDb. So I will not be seeing that film. It's always interesting too, to see the difference between the IMDb score and the meta score. Um, yeah. And the one that's interesting is that Emma movie because the IMDb score is a little bit lower than the meta score. And um, to me with that, says is that it is maybe not super accessible but it's interesting and uh i'm excited for that one naked singularity again i'd heard about it and i knew john boyega was in it but that's disappointing to hear that it's not doing well because i love john boyega and um it kind of seemed like it was a stylistic fun kind of action movie that was not necessarily super big budget so it was maybe going to be a little bit more creative but uh, apparently well I don't know I mean, maybe I'll still see it but I don't see that necessarily happening <laughs> yeah. yeah um it is you once again you kind of brought up a good uh comment about the IMDB to Metascore and uh, I do want to have that conversation a little bit more when we get into my discussion on homeroom because there is that discrepancy there as well. Okay. Um, so before we head into our review for Fantastic Mr. Fox, I just want to have a quick conversation about um, maybe your feelings of whether or not we are going to head into uh, the fall and have a lot of movies delayed um, because COVID may be getting worse. 
uh, if you think that they're going to be willing to do that again, or if they're going to be more interested in throwing them up on some streaming services, um, or what, what are you thinking? Or do you think that we're just going to ride out the storm and theaters are going to stay open and we're, we're still going to get these releases? I think it's really hard to guess this or to predict what's going to happen because we are in a situation where so many theaters have delayed or uh, movies have delayed already. And it is difficult to make that decision again and think, okay, well, how much money am I losing out on all of the marketing that we did for this now? And then we're going to have to revamp it, redo it again and ramp up again for when we release later. Um, so I think that's a tough decision. The, the thing is every, almost every uh, major film release has an out in that they can set up some sort of uh, streaming um, release. I mean, I know that's not super uh, great for some smaller filmmakers, but um, that is a, an option here, you know, and I'm particularly worried about a film like Dune, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but it, the reason I, I kind of don't see a lot of these indie movies or movies that are not expected to have like great box office numbers in the first place. I don't expect them to delay because it's, it's really about the placement of getting that movie out in time for awards recognition for a lot of bigger studios, studios at least. Um, and some filmmakers just want their movie to be seen. So it just as long as it's out there, they'll, they'll get it out. But for a movie like Dune, where there's a lot of pressure at the box office, I think, I think that movie, and I maybe have said something like this before, I think that movie is going to be a uh, box office bust. I think, I think it's going to not uh, do well, partly because it's going to be on streaming um, at the same time, that's going to be a huge problem for it, I think. And I also think that Denis Villeneuve is a director that is a little bit not mainstream enough for most viewer viewers. He's not like a J.J. Abrams who can create some sort of pop uh, culture um, movie that's just going to be entertaining to the masses. Um, and Dune, the story, doesn't lend itself to being entertainment for the masses. And so, um, and I know a lot of other movies are in a similar situation, but this is the one I'm thinking about because it has a lot of potential with awards. And I think it could have been this huge movie, but because of the pandemic right now, I think it's the, the, the cards are stacked against it. Um, what do you think? Uh, I, I think that's the most interesting movie as well, just because it, it's kind of in this weird in-between place. Um, and the, the thing about this is that two things are in play. There's the fact that these movies want to release in the theaters on one side, but the theaters, there have to be enough big movies that want to release in the theaters during this time period for theaters to be able to stay open. Because if theaters aren't getting enough people in the seats, 
then they can't remain open. And then therefore there's not enough theaters for these films to actually be able to have a true theatrical run and make it worth releasing these movies in the theaters. Um, when you could go simply to a uh, release kind of schedule where you're releasing it video on demand for you know a $20 price tag. Um, which some of these other movies might do, but Warner Brothers has kind of put themselves in a weird position here uh, where if theaters do shut down um, because they've already said that they're going to be releasing these movies on streaming at, as part of the price tag for just having HBO Max. Uh, and so it probably, for a lot of the Warner Brothers movies, it probably benefits them to move the movies back again, um, especially like a, a movie like Dune. So Dune, potentially, we don't get until next year if things get real bad. Um, and maybe they decide we're going to do it as a summer release next summer. because um, they. And then at that point, it may take on their new agreement that they made with the movie theaters where they're going to have a window where it will only be released in the theater before moving to their their streaming platform i mean that's what i would try to elect to do if i had any control over it is i would want to push it at least till january you know yeah yeah i i <laughs> yeah yeah it's going to be an interesting thing and um my gut tells me that if things shut down, uh, they're not going to be ready to be back up in time for January. And mm -hmm. so we'd be looking at next summer again. Um, but Dune might be in a place where it benefits from having a summer release if they can't get it done this fall. Uh, but I think, I think that that is something that we truly have to be um, ready for, is that a lot of these movies are uh, going to get pushed back um and then maybe in some cases uh have a different plan where they get released directly to uh, video on demand mm -hmm. i think it's interesting because you know the business side of filmmaking has always been obviously a, the driving factor of what movies get made but i think more now than ever we're aware of it and um so much of the decisions behind when a movie gets released and how it's released and all of that are being talked about because of the pandemic. And so um, I feel like on this show, I, I, I always like to talk about the artistic side of movies more, but it seems like this show, just because of our context right now in the pandemic, we talk so much about the business side of it because um, it's hard not to. It's, yeah. That's just the nature of it. I think that that's part of it, part of it, yeah, because of the situation that we're currently in, but also there are a lot of good movies that don't get seen because the industry is so based around the business aspect of it, and and so you have really good artsy movies that just don't make enough money, so nobody ends up seeing them, so I think that having that conversation and recognizing that um, there is a pool of great films that the average movie watcher is never going to see simply because companies are unwilling to invest a ton of money in them and put them in a place um, where that's the case. But 
I think it's also we're entering into a or we're in the midst of an era where uh, a lot of those films are being seen more than they were previously simply because of streaming services and how uh, these companies like Netflix, they, they're just trying to fill their their sites with uh, as much content as they can. And so they're willing to spend a little bit of money on some of these more art films and the artistic uh, types of films um, because they, they want to put them on their, their platform to give their their subscribers more options. Um, so uh, yeah, I, this is a constant, this art versus money uh, kind of conversation that keeps moving forward. Um, and I know that we keep coming back to like the idea of streaming versus theaters, but uh, I, I think it's an interesting conversation to be having and there's constantly more evidence to uh, kind of add to the conversation. Uh, about whether or not um, we're going to be headed one way or the other, or if this is just kind of a flash in the pan uh, in the midst of a pandemic. It's, it's a far more complicated conversation um, simply because of the, the pandemic. So I think that kind of wraps up our uh, conversation here. And um, we're going to go ahead and move forward with our review here of Fantastic Mr. Fox. So stay right there and we will talk about that film when we return. You just got to not do it, man. That's all. I understand what you're saying and your comments are valuable, but I'm gonna ignore your advice. The cuss you are. The cuss am I? Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point you're at me. You're gonna cuss with somebody. Don't you're you, not gonna you, cuss you with me, you little cuss. Just by the tree. Okay. And we are back and we're looking at Wes Anderson's sixth film from 2009, Fantastic Mr. Fox. The IMDb summary of this movie is an urbane fox cannot resist returning to his farm raiding ways and then must help his community survive the farmer's retaliation. Um, that's a pretty uh, general um, synopsis of this movie, but it gets to the heart of what this movie is about from a plot perspective um, and we'll get into kind of what we think this movie really uh, it speaks to um, when we get further into our review. We've been framing every single one of these reviews with a review from Roger Ebert um, and he's still reviewing at this time so this is what he said about Fantastic Mr. Fox when it came out. Some artists have a way of riveting your vision with the certitude of what they do. This has nothing to do with the subject or style. It's inexplicable. Andy Warhol and Grandma Moses, the sparseness or the spareness of Bergman or the Fellini Circus, Wes Anderson is like that. There's nothing consistent about his recent work, but its ability to make me go zoing. Uh, what else do the Darjeeling Limited, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou have in common? Um, so he is saying that 
Wes Anderson's vision and what he shows us is kind of inexplicable. We can't really explain why it is so interesting and captivating to us, but it is. But we're going to try to explain why it's so interesting or captivating. So, Rob, what did you think of Fantastic Mr. Fox, the second time? Or you've probably seen it more than two times. But yeah, this, time, I mean, this is probably like my fourth or fifth time seeing this, but it's been a while since I... I had last seen uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, I think going into this marathon, Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, was probably my favorite of Wes Anderson's films. And uh, one of the things that I was interested in uh, while reviewing all of these is whether or not it held up. And if I felt like it, in, in 2021, as we are taking a look at everything and really dissecting if I felt the same way about it, and I did. Um, I gave this film a 9 out of 10 um, on IMDb, and it, for me, it gave Wes Anderson a platform to basically do anything that he absolutely wanted to do um, with his storytelling because this film allowed me to realize that Wes Anderson movies are very cartoonish as is and they kind of feel like they're all um, kind of represent this animated world in a way that more so than a realistic world and there, because of that quirkiness, sometimes it doesn't always land in his real live action films in the same way that it does for this uh, animated film, um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, because you are willing and able to bend reality so much more when they are animated characters. And uh, it just works. And I absolutely love this film. And I think that every single time that I watch it, I will kind of go through this um, process of being in awe again and again, because there's so many details within this film that uh, are just very, very impressive. And I think really reflect what we've been talking about as uh, Wes Anderson being just a a fantastic filmmaker when it comes to the craft of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I really did love this. What'd you think of it, Danny? I'm pretty much right in lockstep with you. It's It was one that was probably my favorite, one of my favorites going into this rewatch. And uh, I also gave it a nine out of 10 uh, stars. And um, we will talk more in detail about the specifics of this movie and why it's so great. But I think at core the what you said about him is a perfect blending of his style with the content to meet it and he it feels like you're reading kind of a picture book a children's book sometimes when you're you're watching this the way the camera moves all of those things um and i think that the landscapes of this movie are fantastic they're beautiful it's like a a painting drop backdrop a lot of the time and um the also just the tactile nature of having a real uh figure that is being filmed for the stop motion animation i think that uh adds a reality to it that you wouldn't get in most animated films that are 
um, digital and nowadays. And I think that that is what makes this feel so grounded and real. And um, it fit, again, that fits with the style of filmmaker that Wes Anderson is because he's not, he, I, I, he doesn't do visual effects really. I mean, there probably is some stuff going on in this and then there's probably some movies that he's done where he's had little things, but I think everything's practical and this is a very practical movie. And so I, I really appreciate that. Um, I wanna start maybe our conversation when we, as we talk about this, just talking about the story. Obviously this is uh, based on a Roald Dahl uh, book children's book um it is very i mean the way the story's told with the kind of chapter headings it's very much like that that style of storytelling and you might say that it feels sort of rushed you know big things are kind of happening but i think that that is exactly what he's aiming to do to kind of mirror that storytelling or that type of storytelling and the other thing that i really that stuck out to me this time is just what this movie to me seems to be about and it's about kind of embracing who you are and we get that in this the scenes with ash kind of embracing who he is and he can't be any more anything more than what he is and um same with uh mr fox himself you know he he views himself i'm a wild animal that's who i am that's my nature and them going back to what is their Latin root? What are they good at? What are they? And so playing to your strengths. And I think that type of storytelling, you know, when we think about um, playing to kids and this being kind of a kid's movie in some ways, uh, that's a good lesson to, to share. But at the same time, I like the kind of existential nature of that conversation of like, we, we can only be who we are. We're not, it's not going to, do us any good to try to be something we're not um what did you think overall of the story of this this movie yeah so the the thing that's interesting about this film is that uh i for, i've never read the original fantastic mr fox story by roald Dahl, um so i don't know how much wes anderson messes with the original story my gut tells me he didn't do it a whole bunch um, I think that it probably honors that story pretty well, but uh, he has found a story that frankly kind of fits in with the types of stories he likes to tell. And the character of Fantastic Mr. Fox really fits kind of the mold of uh, Wes Anderson's protagonists in that they are not perfect and they have... Uh, some qualities that are not necessarily desirable um but uh th that is part of who they are and i think that this movie maybe more so than any of his others lets us look at the other films kind of under that microscope and recognize that you know for a lot of wes anderson's protagonists and characters um that that this is kind of a conversation that's being had, that it, we, we are accepting these characters despite all of their imperfections and, um, and really kind of allowing us to uh, think about how dynamic people are in many cases. And I know these are animals, but there's supposed to be kind of that uh, blurred line here um, between 
the animals and people mm-hmm. and uh in what what the story ultimately says about people um so i think that that's a a really interesting aspect of this film because it it allows us to make those connections um between some of these other movies that Wes Anderson has made but yeah I I think that there this is a great film because I think it does play well to children it has a lot of like whimsical aspects to it that I I think you could set down a eight-year-old and they'd enjoy it nearly as much as we do but there's uh, a much deeper uh conversation being had that that is going to go way over the eight-year-old's head but we can um kind of grapple with that mm-hmm. and uh i i think it says some interesting things about um society and capitalism and uh the our interaction with nature and um kind of that yeah, those that different level of between humans and the way we act versus wild animals and the way that they act and kind of trying to live in some some harmony mm-hmm. well and i like that you brought up that this is it is it's a different movie if you see it as an adult versus if you saw it as a kid because you're in touch with this is a, a character who the very beginning he is finds out he's going to have a family so they kind of settle down and they say from the very beginning that they are poor you know and that he's not content with that life he wants a life beyond that and so what does that do is he is then led back to this life of crime you know of raiding these farms and stealing and so i think that is something interesting says something interesting about our lives and you know what what conditions people live in that lead them to make certain choices and how we punish those choices and all of those things um, that make this almost in some ways more about humanity than about any uh animal you know yeah and so that's what makes this i think pretty interesting um another aspect of this that kind of that makes the humanity of them pretty interesting is I think the voice acting is uh, really fantastic, not to be punny here, but uh, the thing that I think is so cool about it is that George Clooney and Meryl Streep have not made a movie with Wes Anderson at this point yet. And they totally just get it. They get the style that Wes Anderson's doing they it's it's like they perfectly know how to deliver his dialogue and it just works and I I should also say that Noah Baumbach also wrote this movie or was a help with the story so he contributed to that as well but I I think that um specifically George Clooney and Meryl Streep are great and then Jason Schwartzman as Ash is my favorite character in the movie just because he has some of the funniest lines in the movie yeah, I mean, it was, that, that's such a dynamic character too, but, and it, that, that kind of struggle with uh, finding your place and being recognized for who you are. Um, yeah, Jason Schwartzman is great as Ash. 
but like frankly this this character of Mr. Fox it fits in line with a lot of the types of roles that George Clooney plays where he's mm-hmm. kind of this confident um, leading man I uh, kind of see that in Oh Brother Where Art Thou it's sort of that character or Ocean's Eleven which at times this feels a little bit Ocean's Eleven-y mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think that that's that's makes it sort of fun too but yeah Meryl Streep um, as Mrs. Fox it's what, what's interesting about it is that it's a pretty understated role um, like she doesn't have to do something like absolutely overly special and she just she delivers the lines perfectly the way that they are meant to be done mm-hmm. um and i think often we think about meryl streep having like these transformative performances but this doesn't have to be one of them and and yeah she's great uh and yeah i mean that the the characters in wes anderson um often aren't very they they don't have a ton of depth and so i think that there's always a little bit of limitation to like how gigantic these these characters can be and it's also one of the reasons we've never seen uh a wes anderson character get nominated for an academy award is because the characters aren't made for that um and and so it's kind of the same thing here just even though it's voice acting you you have these actors who are big time actors who have been nominated for lots of academy awards and uh it's all about just delivery of the lines and doing it in a way that's uh a little dry at times but lands in a very funny sort of way Mm -hmm. and frankly I think that this is probably one of their best or Wes Anderson's best screenplays. Um, I think it's very, very funny and uh, it, it feels a little more cohesive than some of his other, uh, his other screenplays that he has written where it, there's kind of this arc in it and it gets wrapped up nicely at the end and it, it feels paced pretty well. And um, yeah, I, I, I think this screenplay probably should have been nominated for a best adapted screenplay at the Oscars, but. Well, the other aspect of that is it's not only is there just some great dialogue, but I think that the visual uh, storytelling that you see in this movie is pretty solid. And um, there's a lot of the way that they frame things is interesting, but then also just, you know, how they, I think do kind of transitions. I like all the digging scenes, you know, and that looks a little bit different stylistically than some of the other scenes. Um, and it, you, you also, because of the format of this movie, he gets to be so much more playful in what he can do. Um, so for instance, when in the very opening scene, he, when uh, Meryl Streep's character tells Mr. Fox that she's pregnant. He says, you're, you're practically glowing. And so then you literally have a glowing figure there. And that's just something you could, you don't get to do in any other situation other than like an animated movie. And so he, he really gets to lean into the whimsical kind of fun nature of his, I think, natural storytelling, which is, I think, really, 
really special. It is interesting, though, too, that this is a movie that comes out right after Darjeeling Limited, because we talked about how that was maybe one of more more of his conceptual movies that are a little bit more poetic. It's not as literal in some instances. Uh, in this movie, they do things that aren't literal like that's not a literal thing that happens it, they show you literally that it's happening but it's kind of to represent something else so i think that that he's he's playing stylistically with more interesting stuff and one thing that we haven't even mentioned is that the fact that he even decided to do this is is interesting and it's bold and it's ambitious because this is something he has no background in other than doing a little bit of stop motion for Life Aquatic. And uh, I think that that is really cool to see how he's taking a, a step in a new direction as a director. He wants to do something he's never done that's totally out there. And I think that's also why this movie is maybe so much maybe why maybe that's why I favor it over some of the other ones is because it feels so bold and feels so uh so much like he's stretching himself as a director so I really like that aspect yeah yeah um, it's that it's that adaptation too the fact that he took this is the only movie he's done where it's not an original idea and mm -hmm. that he decided to adapt something um it, it makes you wonder if this was always kind of a passion project for him something that he had an idea of and a long time ago and decided, hey, uh, I'd really like to make this at some point in time, but it took kind of that building up and being able to have the budget to be able to do something like mm -hmm. this um, and bring it to life. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily fit um, in where, where he is uh, uh, kind of the way that he was going about making films and all of a sudden he just decided, hey, I'm gonna make this this animated film and it's going to be a little different, but at the same time, it does fit because it, it's still Wes Anderson's storytelling. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, I just, I, I really, really love this. What were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I wasn't going to say anything other than I think that this is a turning point for him as a director. And we'll really examine that more with the, the next three movies that we look at. But, um, this feels like this unlocked something with him in terms of his creativity and in terms of his style. And this is where it feels, it feels like things are all starting to kind of blend and come together in terms of he's, he's, and I, I feel like I've said this before, but he's really solidifying his style because after this, we get Moonrise Kingdom, um, Grand Budapest Hotel, and then Isle of Dogs, all of which feel like they have all of the trademark things we expect of a Wes Anderson movie at this point. Um, so I, I think that that's maybe another reason why this movie seems special to me is viewing it in the larger context of his, his movies. Um, I'm going to shift gears to something that I think is maybe deserving of half of the credit for why this movie is so good. And maybe you're going to disagree with me on this. But Alexandra Desplat's score in this movie is phenomenal because it is whimsical, it's folksy at times, it plays into that, uh, the nature of this being a story for children at times, but it, it has a lot of depth there as well. And I know that he, uh, Wes Anderson has always been a big fan of playing kind of like 
60s rock tunes to kind of and he still uses those uh throughout this movie but this is seems to me the first time where the score takes like such a prominent role in his story make storytelling and um i this is like a score that i'll just listen to at times because i think it's so good um what do you think of of the the music in this movie um the music is one of the reasons that it makes it a nine and not a not a seven or an eight because uh this i think i think wes anderson always relies pretty heavily on music as part of a tone setter for his films um but i think with animated films in particular you have you lean a little bit more on score than you probably do in live action movies especially the types of live action movies that he makes and yes uh this this score is probably his best out of the all of the movies he's made up to this point um and and yeah it's absolutely beautiful and uh it's enjoyable and it really gets you into the tone that the film has um it always kind of blows my mind how you have these composers that are able to really capture kind of the vision of what directors have asked them to capture and do it so beautifully. And um, I think that shows just how good some of these composers actually are in understanding the tone that, that the director is trying to uh, capture with their with their films and that is certainly the case here and it happens so easily like mm -hmm. it, it is it is a score that is very noticeable noticeable but it's also uh because it fits so well um you can at times uh not really realize what it is doing um to you as a as a film viewer um, whereas there are other movies sometimes where the score is it's important and it's great and it fits the tone, but it's almost abrasive in a way that uh, you're very, very conscious of the fact that it exists. Like I think about uh, our conversation last week with um, with The Green Knight and uh, A Ghost Story. At times that score in both of those films is almost so in your face that uh, it you you have no choice but to recognize that it exists and mm -hmm. see it as kind of a, a centerpiece for the film um i don't know that you feel that way with fantastic mr fox it just works really really well and you recognize it if you're looking for it um but i can see people almost ignoring it just because it does fit in so well and the visuals and the score um, kind of have this nice balance. Well, and it's, to me, it's like, it enhances the performances of all the characters. It's makes Mr. Fox that much more charming. Um, it makes uh, the, the scene where Christofferson is really good at the, uh, I can't, it's like a version of baseball. I yep. can't remember what they call it. Um, but uh, like it makes his character seem that much more impressive, you know, all, all of these things. So, um, and I believe that Alexander Desplat also, I know he does Grand Budapest Hotel and I'm pretty sure he also does Moonrise Kingdom for him. Um, 
and he probably does Isle of Dogs as well. So it's it's interesting that at this point, this is maybe why I feel too that this is a transition point because that score is playing a bigger role. And uh, so that that's a really exciting aspect of uh, this movie for me. And of all movies, I just love the musical aspect of most movies. And so when a movie has really good music, it takes it to a whole other level. Um, what other aspects of this movie do you feel like we need to recognize or should be talked about? Well, one of the things that, and this isn't surprising because I think we have been pretty clear about how Wes Anderson is very interested in the details of his movies that would be really easy to kind of bypass but I think he, even though it, some, some of the things are just split seconds, um, it's worthwhile for him to include it in the fact that we recognize those things um, makes it all that more worthwhile for him to do it. And one of the things that uh, just kind of almost blows my mind or impresses me so much is the fact that through the animation, when they have close-ups on these characters the foxes you can see like their fur kind of like moving around mm -hmm. and it's just such a like that's not something that he would have needed to do uh because it takes that extra level of uh detail in the work and the movement of these characters but you see as like the fur kind of moves on their face as they're talking or as they're outside maybe it's kind of like represents like it blowing in the wind a little bit mm -hmm. um but it's that atten attention to detail that is so impressive to me and how he is very very interested in the way that his films look beyond just the content that we are receiving um, from the dialogue in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that kind of bleeds over to, we've already talked about it a little bit, is that product, the production design on this film and how every set piece is beautifully made and very, very uh, intricate. Like the, and having the overhead shots of the landscapes that he created out of the kind of clay design and mm -hmm. the different properties that they are on and how detailed some of that stuff is. Um, it, it is just a very beautiful film in the aesthetic aspect of it. And uh, that I think takes this, I mean, in, in this isn't to say that his other films aren't just as beautiful from an aesthetic standpoint, but the fact that all of this was like, had to be meticulously hand created um, and it was all built from scratch mm -hmm. is very, very, very impressive here. And I think that if we don't really lean on that, um, it, it, kind of undercuts just how amazing this film actually is the thing the unfortunate part about this movie is it came out in the year that up also came out and up is kind of considered to be one of the uh, top tier pixar films and i think there's a lot of years that this movie probably is a best animated oscar winner um, mm -hmm. even against Pixar movies, just because it is a really special animated film. Mm -hmm. um, and personally, 
if I were an Oscar voter during this year, I would have voted for Fantastic Mr. Fox over Up, even though I also very much appreciate that film. But that was a really, really good year for animated films. I think there's a few others that came out that year that were also very good. But uh, I'll look that up. Uh, do you want to add anything? Well, I just, I, I think that... Uh... I'm excited for you to see because you haven't seen Isle of Dogs and I'm, I'm excited for you to see it because you can see that he that there's the, the animation has gotten that much better for Isle of Dogs and I think specifically in the settings there's a lot of really great settings in this movie and landscapes and everything but because of this movie being fairly small in terms of the scope you know there's a lot of like nature shots there's the farm shots uh, the sewer shots but they they don't have to have a ton a ton a ton of variety of different sets but i think you you do end up seeing a much bigger variety of sets in um isle of dogs and so you could and you i think just the, the they got better with doing the stop motion animation um so that's something that is exciting it it, it is exciting to me that this wasn't a one and done type of thing for him that he liked it enough that he was like I'm gonna do it again you know and he does another stop-motion movie and the other one is is because it's not based on any source material it's it's totally idiosyncratic different than this movie in a lot of ways um so um that's kind of where I'm I'm excited to maybe come back to Fantastic Mr. Fox in the future is when we talk about Isle of Dogs yeah, I, uh, I, as I was watching this, I was thinking about the excitement of getting to see I Love Dogs for the first time because I haven't watched it yet. And uh, being able to kind of compare it to this film um, and just watching some of those details again, that's part of what got me really excited to see that film. Mm -hmm. uh, that year was a very good year for uh, animated films. Up ended up winning the Oscar. Um, for best animated film but they also had Coraline which came out that year which is a very creative animated film um, very unique obviously fantastic Mr. Fox the princess and the frog and the secret of Kells which is uh, from the same makers who made wolf walkers mm. um, and so there were there were five really creative films and uh, I think this was the very first year that no, I guess they did it in 2002, but uh, they, it, up to this point, they had not been nominating five animated films uh, very often because uh, there weren't enough animated films that were coming out. And so I kind of feel like this is where we started to see a shift um, between uh, a, an industry that didn't necessarily lift up animated films as much as being high quality uh, cinema to all of a sudden now, a lot of people are trying to make um, really high quality animated films and recognizing that this is a part of the industry that hasn't been tapped into as much. And uh, I think so, since this point in time, uh, there's been a lot more animated films that are made that are telling stories that aren't necessarily as catered to children and recognizing the animation is a, a 
worthy uh, mode for, for telling a story, uh, even for audiences of all ages. Um, and Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think, fits into kind of that mold pretty well. Well, it's interesting, too, because I think that we are probably even going to go further in that direction of animation that is maybe solely for adults. Um, and we've gotten there with TV, but we haven't quite gotten there with movies. There was a movie uh, that came out that I believe was written by Charlie Kaufman uh, in 2018 on Anomalisa. And I never saw it, but that was an R-rated stop motion movie. Um, and I think that style uh, of animation of being catered towards adults is something we'll, we'll lean towards more in the future. I, and I, I think that's a good thing. I mean, because there's certain things that you can do creatively, like this movie shows us that you can't do with, <laughs> with uh, a live action movie. Yep. Um, so if you have not seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, go see it. It is currently on Disney Plus. Um, which is an interesting place for it to be because I did not know that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, you can watch it on Disney Plus. Um, same with Isle of Dogs. So if you're thinking you want, like you watch Fantastic Mr. Fox and you want to prepare for our eventual conversation of Isle of Dogs, it is on Disney Plus. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Disney bought 20th Century Fox. And so that's the reason that it is included on there. Um, but it's interesting because it's, they don't have their other Wes Anderson movies on there. It's only the uh, the animated ones to kind of fit the Disney brand. Uh, but go see it. Um, up to this point, uh, this is my favorite of the Wes Anderson movies. Uh, there's still a few more that could potentially uh, play into um, taking that number one spot. Uh, but uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, so when we return from this break, we're going to just talk about briefly uh three movies that we uh, individually we we've each seen one or two of them um and kind of break those down and and have some conversations that may surround uh these films uh currently so stick right there And we are back. We are going to talk about a few uh, movies that we've caught up with over the past few weeks here. And uh, we feel like they deserve a little bit of time to um, be dissected and uh, talked about a little bit. And so the first one I did talk about a little bit on my Sundance preview. And that is the Apple TV Plus film Coda. And I... Uh, the thing that's really, really interesting about CODA and a conversation that is being had um, specifically on Twitter among film critics is whether or not CODA is that good of a movie. And it, it kind of fits in this weird place because it is not the most crafty movie. Uh, it doesn't have maybe some of the technical aspects that make other films absolutely amazing um, but what it does it does 
very well. And uh, to discount any of that is, I think, problematic. And so I think maybe more so than any movie that I saw this year, CODA allows me to recognize that films are digested in different ways and that there is an enjoyment factor to certain movies, even if it doesn't have all of the pieces that I typically like um, in high quality film. I think CODA has an opportunity to be an Oscar uh, in the Oscar conversation on a number of different levels, especially with an expanded field of 10 films. I can see it sneaking in with a Best Picture nomination, but because it lacks in some areas of craft, it's going to have a harder time getting in. Um, and it certainly is not going to be a favorite to win Best Picture. Um, but I did end up giving the film an eight out of 10. Um, and we kind of compare that to the 8.2 IMDb score and the 75 meta score. And I kind of fit right there in the middle, um, which I think uh, it works out all right. Um, critics are going to be a little bit more harsh in terms of uh, rec recognizing that the film cinematography is just fine. There's nothing really wrong with it, but it's not overly special. Um, some of the other technical aspects aren't overly special, but they do what they're supposed to do. Where the film is great is just in its storytelling. This is the sort of movie that nearly everybody that watches movies could sit down and I think enjoy and take something away with it uh, or take something away from it that uh, they, you know, they leaves them feeling um, like it was a good movie. Uh, I would be hard pressed to find anybody that truly sits down and truly does not like this movie. And if you don't like it, then you probably don't like a lot of movies and you may just have a very uh, kind of niche area that, that you really enjoy. But it relies a lot on the heart of what is happening here. And the acting is part of the reason that this film is so great. Um, the main actress uh amelia let me get it right i want to make sure i'm getting it right give me a second um amelia jones uh she is out of the main cast she is the only actress who is not deaf and she plays a character who is not deaf and uh this this girl is a high schooler who is um the only one in her family who is not deaf. Her parents are deaf and her brother is deaf and they are uh, a fishing family and they rely heavily on her in order to be able to make money. And as a high school student trying to kind of find her um, own identity in the world, there are some areas where things clash which kind of creates the, the conflict within the story. But Amelia Jones is the lead character she's really really good in this um but her family um her mother played by marley matlin who is uh who's won a, an oscar before 
um, and her father, Troy uh, Kotsur, I think, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, they're both fantastic. And I think that they both have an opportunity to be nominated for best supporting, for the best supporting roles um, come Oscar time. Because uh, they just, they, they play these roles real, so well. And I think that this would be an excellent opportunity for the Academy to recognize um, actors who have disabilities uh, and show that they are still are able to uh, perform at the same level as anyone else. Um, it would not be a situation where they're only being nominated simply because of their disability, but because they, they, they have excellent performances. And so I, I think with Sound of Metal last year and like really making this a, a core, um, it, that was a big part of, of uh, telling a story that doesn't often get to be told. I think this builds on that. And uh, the Academy has an opportunity to really show a perspective of uh, people that we don't always get to see on the screen and, um, and really reward some well-deserving actors. Uh, the story is pretty basic. Like there's nothing overly surprising about it, but it's done so well. And I could see this screenplay getting a best adapted screenplay nomination. This is based off of a, a, a foreign film. Um, so it's a remake essentially. And, uh, and so I could see this getting nominated. It's once again, it's not overly complex or anything, but it's just done very, very well. And it is the sort of movie where you can't help but feel just some joy while watching it. And uh, you definitely have your Kleenex box nearby because uh, it, it's a crier. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Coda. And out of any movie that I recommend this year to a wide ranging audience, this is the movie to see. Um, just because I, I believe wholeheartedly that we need this sort of movie right now. And uh, everybody needs this sort of movie right now. And uh, it's really, really hard to not like. I'm excited to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot of times when we do have the uh, movies that are exploring the lives and of people that are hearing impaired, music is often a aspect of those movies because music is something that is, is so joyful. It is so emo emotive that, um, that joy is something that we feel like everybody should be able to experience in a certain way. Um, and I, I believe I saw in a trailer, a scene where uh, I imagine it's like her father that wants to feel her voice as she's singing. And I think that, I mean, that that's sort of thing, the way we experience music, even if we're not hearing it, it's still an experience, you know, and, bringing that to, to people, I think is, is cool. Um, so I'm excited to see this one. Um, yeah, definitely. If you, so, uh, I, before I let you move on to your movie, I want to just kind of put this out there because, um, I've seen narratives around social media about how people 
are unwilling to take on a new streaming service because they don't want to either they don't want to pay for it or for whatever reason, like there's this narrative, I already have this and this and this, I'm not getting Apple TV plus because they don't have a ton of movies and stuff like that. But here's the thing. You can get a seven day free trial of Apple TV plus if you've never had it before. If you have had it before, or if you need it a little bit longer, it's only $4.99. If you were to go see this movie in the movie theaters, you'd pay far more than $4.99. And beyond uh, the $4.99 just paying for this movie, you pay for a month and you get it for you get the service for a month. Yeah, I understand that they don't have the large catalog that some of these other streaming services have, but I feel like the films and TV series that they have chosen are of a higher quality than some of the other streaming services. And they're being a little more picky about what they are putting on their platform. And I think it's well worth it to, uh, to pay that for a month. Um, I am a huge, huge advocate for Ted Lasso. And I think that uh, it's well worth the cost just to get Ted Lasso. I've now watched Ted Lasso three times um the first season three times so uh and i'd watch it again i love that show and so between coda and ted lasso the 4.99 is completely worth your your money for a month um so do it just get it uh and then you can cancel it and even if you forget to cancel it for one month two months is still cheaper than going to the movie theaters once yep man they need to pay you rob they apple tv <laughs> They could just they could pay me with a free subscription. That'd be yeah, good. that'd be good. <laughs> um, so this last week, a movie I caught up with was uh, Val, which is on uh, Amazon, and it's an A twenty four movie documentary. Um, this is a movie that is about the actor Val Kilmer, um, and it basically is the outset of this movie is that Val Kilmer and uh, I believe like 2013, 2014, was diagnosed with throat cancer. Um, this, he's recovering from this and something that this has left him with is he has a very difficult time speaking. And um, he has to plug a hole in his throat to be able to speak. His voice is very um, nasally and scraggly. And you you really then are confronted with this story of, as an actor, what do you do when one of your main ways of c communicating and doing your job is taken away from you? Um, and so this movie is about him basically retelling his own life and um, explaining kind of the things that took him up until he, where he is now. And I think that this movie, there's, there's a lot that it's just, there's sad moments in this movie and it's a, it's very interesting to kind of look at somebody who was such a star and um, kind of see how they reflect on that. Um, I think that's an aspect of this movie that makes it really great is it is so personal to him. He pretty much all of the uh, footage is footage that he recorded uh, as home videos. And um, you'll find from the very beginning that he was interested in filmmaking because his younger brother wanted to be a filmmaker or was 
um, really interested in filmmaking. So they made movies as kids. And so there's all of these videos of him as a kid. And then he, that carries on through his entire career. And it's just kind of amazing to see what footage is there. You get footage of um, him joking about having a feud with Tom Cruise on the set of Top Gun. You get footage of uh, um, Marlon Brando in one of his last films and he's just the size of a water buffalo. I mean, like there's just, it's just this interesting to kind of get this look behind the, the camera of what this, this person's life was like. Um, I will say that I think something that maybe is a downside of this movie is that he is so closely uh, involved with the story storytelling. He's a producer, he's part of the filmmaking process um, that uh, I felt like there was times where it could, it could have been more objective and it wasn't. And, but that's just the nature. It's his story. He's deciding to tell this story the way he wants. And so that's just the nature of this movie. So um, Val Kilmer is one of these actors who, you know, is, has had, uh, you know, a, a kind of plagued career as being somebody who's difficult to work with. And they go into that a little bit, but you hear it from his side, but you don't get anybody else's perspective on that. And so it's one of those things that I kind of wish we would get more actors' perspectives on him as an actor or more people's perspectives on him as an actor. Um, but overall, if you are somebody that enjoyed Tombstone or Heat or you're a fan of Top Gun and you like Val Kilmer as an actor, I think that, that this is a movie that's worth watching. And if you're just somebody that's interested in Hollywood and the way we, uh, the way actors kind of go through their career, I think this is a, an interesting movie to, to look at because you really see he's come to a place where he's really, he's not able to perform in the way that he would like, and you can still see that he has this performer's energy. He just wants so badly to perform. Um, and that is the part that's, you know, that's like kind of the heart of the movie for me. So I ended up giving it a seven out of 10 on uh, Metascore as a 73 and on IMDb as a 7.9. So that's pretty much right around the average. It's a solid documentary. And if you're interested in any anything that I said, I think that this is a movie worth checking out. Yeah, I, uh, I do really want to see this movie. Part of why I haven't watched it yet is because I, I imagine it to be a little bit emotional and, um, and that it, it's going to make me feel some sad, sadness. And sometimes I'm not ready to uh, jump in and do that right away. Um, and so I am going to catch this at some point in time because I think that it, it does seem very interesting and I, and I like Val Kilmer. I think that he probably is one of the more underappreciated actors that we have, um, that we've had over the last, uh, you know, three decades. And, uh, if, if he were to be able to continue having, um, uh, acting in the way that he was able to previously that he would have probably been recognized by the academy at some point in time for a role um i think there would have been a chance for him to kind of have a resurgence but uh pro that's probably not gonna happen and um it's i think nice that there's at least it, this film is 
opportunity to recognize his uh, career and some of the things that he has done. And I hope that he still finds a way to be able to um, be involved in film and uh, still be able to kind of have his own lasting impression on, mm -hmm. on the film world. Um, so yes, I do plan on eventually catching up with that uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully. Uh, I think there's a chance it gets nominated for best documentary because Hollywood might decide, hey, this is a good opportunity to recognize him. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Um, so the last film that I want to talk about is Homeroom. And at the beginning of the show, I, I told you that uh, it currently has a 4.99 on IMDb and a 68 Metascore. And I, I lean pretty heavily on IMDb scores and Metascores on a regular basis. But especially with the IMDb score, you have to take that score with a grain of salt. And when it comes to documentaries, um, they often don't get seen. And so you have extremes on both sides. The type of person that watches a documentary often watches a documentary either because they're skeptical of something that the documentary is talking about and they want the ability to kind of crap on it after they're done watching it or they really, really love the, the subject. And so then that they're biased either way. And so you don't always get a real clear uh, vision of, or idea of what, how good this, these movies are. And so you see this extreme difference between the IMDb score, which is a 4.9 and the Metascore, which is a 68. That's a huge jump. Um, and part of the reason is that Right now on IMDb, Homeroom only has 123 <laughs> reviews from IMDb users. So it hasn't been seen by a lot of people. And when I go into the read, there are like people that left actual reviews. It's so very clear that there are people that are reviewing this film that maybe didn't even watch the movie, but they are upset at the fact that the main kind of core of this are these are high school students who are fighting against injustices um, in their community of Oakland in both the city um, but also within their school district as they are asking for uh, um, the police presence to be removed from their school district and so this really taps into an issue that is uh, kind of at the forefront of political conflict in our country currently um, between this idea of uh, kind of pulling back on police being as great of a president presence within our community and those that believe that there needs to be almost more presence in order to take care of a lot of the um, problems that are going on in communities. And this documentary to me is more interesting simply because it is from a teen perspective. And maybe it resonates with me a little bit more because I'm a high school teacher and uh, I see a lot of my students in the main subjects of this film. Um, but 
part of why I think that this is an effective documentary is because it takes a look at these society issues and it recognizes that this isn't just a problem within the society around us, but this is something that's impacting even our youth and will continue to impact our youth um, as they grow older. These are the issues that they are going to have to handle as they go out into the world and have to deal with that. And so to see uh, kids be politically active and want to be an agent of social change um, is really, really cool here. And this, this documentary has a, a little bit of a kind of boys state feel to it. Um, where you you still you see them doing some pretty incredible things for uh, teenagers to be able to kind of take on some of these bigger things, but at the same time you also see that they they are at at the core of it they're still young people and they still have some ways to go in terms of maturity and. Um, I think that's what makes this a, a very dynamic uh, documentary and you have to be able to kind of read it as such. Um, on top of that, the film also has the element of they started this documentary and this documenting of what happened prior to COVID and then the pandemic happened. And so you get to see um, kind of how the pandemic has impacted students and uh, kind of see the way that that changed things for uh, this group of students who were entering into their senior year when, when the pandemic kind of shut everything down. Mm -hmm. um, one more thing, and then I'm gonna let you have a few comments about this. So this is a film made by the director, Peter Nix, and he has made two other documentaries that deal with um, the Oakland area and some of the uh, problems that the city of Oakland has dealt with. Um, so this deals with uh, kind of the police presence in schools and um, how that impacts students. Uh, he had one from 2012 called The Waiting Room, which is about uh, the medical um in like hospitals and uh hospitals within the community and how they deal with uninsured patients um because many people in oakland happen to be uninsured because they can't afford it um mm -hmm. and so that was a one of the subjects that he has taken a look at and then he also did one uh called the force which is about uh their urban police department in oakland and kind of their uh conflicts within the community um, and so he's very interesting in the dynamic of uh, how certain cities um, they they have some problems because there is this uh, extreme difference between those that have and those that don't and uh, in how that that has an impact on the way that people live their lives um, so in general uh, it speaks to my heart a little bit more, but uh, I still think Homeroom is an excellent documentary. I ended up giving it eight out of 10, which is even quite a bit higher than the Metascore. Um, but if this is the sort of thing that is interesting to you, um, then I highly recommend seeing this, this documentary. Well, and I think that this 
will probably speak to me too as a high school teacher as well. And uh, it is, uh, and if it is like Boys State, which I thought was good, and, and Boys State is is not as issue oriented as this seems to be. Um, I think this is one that probably a lot of teachers would um, would appreciate just based on what you've you've talked about. And I remember when we were gonna um, kind of select the Sundance films that we wanted to see, that was one that I was interested in. I just didn't get to, to watch it with you. So um, I'm excited to see this. And I think that um, I, I would imagine if this were a less politically uh, turbulent time, this is maybe a movie that probably would get a little bit more recognition or maybe, um, but I, th I, I think that maybe there's a sense that sometimes people are afraid to lift up movies that are gonna cause a, a big scene like that. Um, and the other issue is that you have real kids that are the subjects of these movies and you kind of put a target on their back too when you have people that are you know you do you know what i mean like i think yeah. that that's that's the other scary thing about this is um this is such a politically uh difficult su subject for a lot of people and uh they also a lot of people are misinformed about it or a lot of people go so quick to anger before they come to trying to understand or trying to talk it out in any way. And um, this is an interesting movie from that aspect. And just because I think anything that is touched by the pandemic instantly has some sort of uh, worthwhile aspect to, to maybe understand or learn from. And so I'm excited for, for that aspect as well. Um, so that, that kind of wraps up our conversation on these few films, but I did want to, we didn't talk about the fact that uh, Val is on Amazon Prime. So if you have Amazon Prime, you can check that movie out on Amazon Prime and Homeroom is on Hulu. So now we've given you three different streaming services that uh, movie on each of them that you can watch. Um, and, and yeah, so all of the movies that we talked about today, uh, all you could, you can watch all of them on a streaming service. Um, and, and we recommend doing it. I think that there are some good movies out there and uh, they, movies like Homeroom and Val probably aren't gonna get seen by as many people, but if you like documentaries, um, there are a lot of good documentaries on these streaming services. And uh, I, I highly recommend checking some of them out. Um, we'll try to do a better job of highlighting some of those movies that probably don't get seen by as many people um, that you can catch on these streaming services because I think they're worthwhile watching. Um, so that wraps up, wraps up our show. I do want to say that next week we are going to be doing a double feature review of Annette and the Spark Brothers. Um, they, the Sparks Brothers, they are uh, both kind of related. And so we'll have a discussion about kind of that relation. And um, I think that uh, being able to watch both of them may give us a, an appreciation for each film in a way that uh, it wouldn't if we were to review them individually. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and then we'll finish up 
the month of August by doing a review of Moonrise Kingdom, which is the next film in the Wes Anderson Marathon. So we'll do that uh, on August 29th. And then we'll, we'll be into the fall. So we'll, at that point in time, we will announce um, some more of the films we're planning on reviewing. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we'll get to see some of the ones that we have on the schedule and they don't all get shut down because of the pandemic. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So until next week, have a good one. We'll see you later. Thank you.